Well, it's Palm Sunday, and I imagine for many of us who grew up in church, uh, this Sunday in particular brings up memories of being a child in church. Am I correct? Let me take a poll. How many of you were given a palm branch as a child at some point as a child in church on, on Palm Sunday? Maybe you were, you were given the branch and you were told to like reenact the, the, the triumphal entry. You're waving your palm branches saying Hosanna and you're, you're uh, maybe if you grew up in some churches, you followed a donkey around the church building, I believe. Let me see those hands again. It's a, it's a whole lot of us. I remember that, and I always appreciate that because we got to be the good guys of the story. We got to be excited about Jesus. We got to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, like, we were the good guys. Thank you, Sunday school teachers, for giving a chance for these kids to be superstars. We weren't the Pharisees who were concerned about what was taking place and wanted Jesus to make the crowd stop. We were the good guys. But what's interesting is just a few days later, whether it was that same lesson on Palm Sunday, or maybe it was on Easter Sunday, there was a point where we learned the rest, of, maybe it was VBS, we learned the rest of the story, and we learned there was another crowd, it was a bad crowd, the bad crowd that said, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus, and we're like, ooh, I'm glad we're not reenacting him, could you imagine, children, everyone say crucify him, I mean, that's just, you will not be allowed to teach Sunday school in this church. But then the plot twist happens, then they look at us and say, guess what? It's the same people, Wah-ha-ha-ha-ha. and you feel like betrayed by your Sunday school teacher, like, wait a minute, you just made me the bad guy. Traumatized children tricked by their Sunday school teachers, and the moral of the story from our Sunday school teacher is, don't be a sellout. Don't be like that one moment like that, you're a sellout. Now, if that describes your childhood somewhat, um, I want to let you know that we are forming a support group, and you can sign up for that in the lobby after service. And if you have children in our kids' church, I ask... Pastor Angela, she said, we are not, we, there's no palm branches today, so you're welcome. Actually, I want to say something real quick because it is worth noting that not everyone agrees that it's the same exact crowd that turned on Jesus. Some people believe that it was two different crowds, two different, entirely different crowds of people. But you know what was happening during Passover? The, uh, the, the Jewish historian Josephus says there was like 2.7 million people, so I don't know that we could be totally sure who exactly made up this crowd versus this crowd. I'm sure there was some, there was some overlap, and I, I, I have a certain opinion, but uh, and maybe my opinion will, will come to light as we look at this passage today. But even if it was two separate crowds, the, the, it doesn't make anything a whole lot better because the moral of the story of the, uh, as I was as a child was don't, don't sell out, be excited for Jesus, and don't turn your back on him. And if it's two different crowds, I guess the moral of the, the story is Pick your friends wisely? I don't know. Be with that crowd and not with that crowd. Either way, the message becomes one of do better and try harder. It's what I like to call a good advice story. Good advice story, or gas, if you abbreviate it. See, the Bible, I believe, doesn't, isn't as concerned with good advice stories as it is with a good, a good news story. And as your pastor, I believe my primary purpose is to pass along good news and not pass along gas. So today, I want to re-examine this very familiar story with fresh eyes. With fresh eyes, a focus on Jesus rather than the crowds. And as we do, I believe that we're going to see that this triumphal entry is indeed a good news story. It's a story of God's grace, a story of God's mercy and God's love. Now, if you're not a Christian here, we're so glad you're here today. 
I can pronounce the word Christian, I promise. We're so glad you're here today. Um, and perhaps you've come here and you have questions. Uh, maybe you even have objections. That's totally cool too. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to relax because really this message is geared towards Christians. But I do believe that there's something in this message for you. I, I promise I'm not here to make you uncomfortable. If anything, I'm here to make the Christian people uncomfortable. But this is a message of mercy and grace which is extended to you as well. Perhaps today, some of the objections that you have to, to this Jesus thing, to church, to Christianity, maybe they'll be confirmed. But maybe some of the answers you're looking for to the questions you have will be found as well. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Luke chapter 19. And as you do, I want to set up this passage. Luke is uh, the Gospel of Luke. It's written by Luke. That's why they call it the Gospel of Luke. It's not the Gospel about Luke. It's written by a guy named Luke who recounts Jesus' birth, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. It parallels in large part the, the first two Gospels, which we call the Synoptic Gospels, when you take the three of them together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, Luke, every, every Gospel has its own little emphasis. Luke really emphasizes the humanity of Christ as well as his Jewish roots, he emphasizes the fact that this is the Jewish Messiah for a Gentile word because Luke and Acts are like volume one, volume two. He wrote that as well. Luke emphasizes how the poor, the marginalized, the outcast, and the sinners have a special place in God's heart. You're going to see that throughout this book. Now, since we're looking at Luke's account, and the triumphal entry shows up in the other Gospels, but since we're looking at Luke's account, I think to understand Luke's account, it would, it would do us good to pull some context to kind of back up a little bit. Back up, you don't have to actually turn here, but back up all the way to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is the turning point in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 9 is a couple of things happen, and it's where Jesus, who's ministering mostly in Galilee, he's ministering in his hometown, on his home turf, close to home, uh, or in that, in that region. Some, a, a couple of things happen, and he turns and begins his march to Jerusalem ultimately his march to the cross. Here are a couple of things that happened. Early on in Luke chapter 9, Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, asked, who is this man? People say John the Baptist is resurrected. Who is this guy? And that's there for us. Luke put that there so that we can, we can see what the people are wrestling with. We see what this, his, this man in his ministry, but who is this man? And then Peter makes a profession of faith. When Jesus is like, who do you think I am? Who do people say I am and who do you think I am? He says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ sent from God. And then after that, there's another identifying moment to answer the question, who is this man? And it's the transfiguration. And a voice comes from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And then in verse 51, we see the shift, geographic shift. The journey begins to Jerusalem. Let me read verse 51 of Luke chapter 9. As the time draw near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely sent out for Jerusalem. He is now a man on a mission. He's moving to the cross. And he's moving to his purpose and destiny. So for 10 chapters, you see this movement towards Jerusalem and towards his purpose, towards the cross. And we get to Luke chapter 19. We're going to not read all of Luke chapter 19, but the very first part of that chapter to bring us closer to the end, the end of this journey to Jerusalem. We first, he meets Zacchaeus in verses 1 through 9. You guys know that story. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. 
Then verses 10 through 27, Jesus tells a parable, parable of the 10 servants. But why does he tell a parable? You see the reason why he tells a parable as he's getting closer to Jerusalem in verse 11 of chapter 19. And because, and let me read it to you. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. There was an impression, there was a feeling, there was an energy surrounding Jesus. And we're about to read it in the triumphal entry. But before that even happens, there was this thought, the kingdom kingdom of of God is about to begin. Look at him, he's headed to Jerusalem. Let's read Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. After telling this story, Jesus went towards Jerusalem, walking ahead of the disciples. He came to the town of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mountain of Olives, and he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here, he asked. Or here. He also asked, well, if anyone asks, why are you untying the colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. First of all, let's just get this out of the way because it's not part of the hermeneutic of this passage. Those are some really cool donkey owners or like colt owners, right? Why are you untying my colt? Jesus needs it. Cool, take it. Does it work that way? I don't know. Anyway, back to the passage that actually maybe matters. Uh, Not that that doesn't matter. It's just, don't you read that and go, that's weird. Anyway, that's just Jerome. So Jesus is almost there. He's, on, he's in Bethany, which is on the eastern slope of the Mount Olives. The Mount Olives sits to the east of Jerusalem. And to get to Jerusalem, it's only about two to three miles. So you have to go up over the mount, down to the Kidron Valley, and then back up towards Jerusalem, enter through the east gate. This is Jesus traveling. He's in Bethany. Does anyone else know what happens in Bethany right before the triumphal entry? It's not here in Luke, so you can't, you'd have to find it in a different gospel. This is where he actually, Lazarus, is from, from Bethany. And if you look at the Gospel of John, you're going to see him raise Lazarus from the dead right before the triumphal entry. So this is, this is the setting of where we're at. Jesus uh, gives instructions to disciples to secure his transportation, which is interesting because in chapter 9, he turns and he begins walking to Jerusalem. And he's walked 99% of the way And suddenly, I guess his sandals, like, gave out, or he finally felt his feet caught up with them, and he's like, okay, I just can't walk anymore. No, there was something that Jesus was doing by riding in to Jerusalem. It's not just, like, I'm coming in in style, vintage, you know, or a brand new 80, 12 donkey. I mean, it's, he's, he's not just saying, I need transportation to look cool. He's been walking this whole time. And now he says, get this, get this form of transportation. But what's taking place here? Zechariah 9.9 says this. This is to fulfill a messianic prophecy that we read about in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Jesus knows what message he's sending. And the people are excited about that message. The fact that this donkey had never been ridden on before 
shows a purity and a sacredness that this animal has that it's set aside for this task, kind of like the Virgin Mary, set aside for the task. This is the perfect setup for the Messiah to show up and start doing Messiah things. He's fulfilling a messianic prophecy. The Messiah is here and expectations are high and the atmosphere has to be electric. Let's keep reading. Luke chapter 19, verse 36. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If I keep quiet the stones, if they keep quiet, the stones along the word the road would burst into cheers. Let's talk about what we just read there. Jesus is writing, and a couple of things really stand out in this triumphal entry. Obviously, there's the crowd. Now, I know it's Palm Sunday, and we didn't read the word palm at all in that. All the other Gospels mention branches. John, in particular, mentions palm branches. But we know there was palm branches involved in this thing. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And people were shouting, Hosanna. Here's the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We're going to talk about that. The word Hosanna doesn't show up in Luke's account either. But let's talk about these three things. Because we know from the other Gospels, they're there. First of all, the crowd is made up of pilgrims who've come to Jerusalem for Passover. I mentioned earlier that Josephus, the Jewish historian, had said that there was at least one Passover with 2.7 million people, and not in a modern city with a number of hotels and a convention center. 2.7 million people in a city in the first century. The place is crowded. These pilgrims traveled to Jerusalem to worship, and many had actually been Galileans, for sure, who are very familiar with Jesus' ministry. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 12, in the account of the, the, the triumphal entry from John, we read this in verses 17 through 18, speaking of the crowds. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb. Remember, that was just in Bethany. Raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That is, that is the reason so many went out to meet him, because they heard about his miraculous sign. The crowd is excited about what Jesus can do, what he has done, what, he's, what they think he's about to do. Then there's the palm branches. Um, I don't know if you know this, but palm branches were plentiful around Jerusalem back then and even today. Nothing in the Old Testament prescribes palm branches for Passover, and that's what's taking place at this time. That's why the, that's why the pilgrims are there. But yet palm branches had become a national symbol about 200 years prior during what we call the intertestamental periods. There's 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Um, there was, uh, you might remember the Old Testament, there was like the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and then eventually there was the, the Syrians, we, we don't read about in the intertestamental period, the Greeks, before the Romans came on the scene. By the, by the time the New Testament starts, the Greeks are on the scene. But there was a whole 400 years where we don't have. But there was, there was a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt, there was a number of revolts. There was a number of times where they battled with the Greeks and they kicked the Syrian Greeks out. Uh, they rededicated the temple and they celebrated by waving palm branches. It became a nationalistic symbol. Palms actually appeared on coins made by the Romans and the Jewish uh, people 
to represent Judea, that region. See, palm branches in this scene tip us off to the mindset of the crowd that we just talked about. It, it, it furthers their hopes and their ambitions and what, they, what they're anticipating. They just saw Lazarus raised from the dead and now they're seeing palm branches and they're saying, yeah, this is our messianic liberator. Just like we kicked the, 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 the Syrians out 200 years ago, we're kicking, the, we're kicking the Romans out. They were thinking about revolution. Further proof of that is in the fact that they're, they're proclaiming Hosanna. Originally, the trans, Hosanna is a transliteration of a Hebrew phrase that means salvation now. What's a transliteration? A transliteration is where we carry a word over from one language to the other. We don't actually translate the word. Uh, like we translate Spanish casa to English house, but we don't translate Volkswagen to the people's car company. That's really what it means in German. So that's, that's called transliteration. So they, that happens between, especially Hebrew culture and, and the Old Testament, and then they come into the New Testament time and they're speaking Greek. So they're saying, Hosanna, save us, rescue us. And it comes from Psalm chapter 118, verses 25 through 26. Listen carefully, though. Please, Lord, please save us. This is Psalm 118. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Man, they didn't even quote it correctly. They changed it up. Bless is the king, or here is the king. They have announced him as king. They are crowning him king and, and taking this passage and using it for what they hope to see happen. The crowd understands the palm branches. They understand Psalm 118 in a messianic sense and their mess, the Messiah that they're thinking is a political and military king who's going to lead another revolt, a civil war, to give Israel its kingdom back, no longer being ruled by an outside force. This time it's the Romans. It's been others in the past. Just like 200 years ago, the religious leaders are also seeing this, and they're thinking this is a civil war, there is a revolt. I could just see them because when they approach Jesus, Jesus is still riding on this donkey. Could you see the Pharisees like, hey, you got to make this thing stop. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to let him carry on, which is interesting because if you read the Gospels, when Jesus encounters people, what does he do oftentimes? He says, don't tell anyone about me. Don't tell anyone about me. We've been, we've been preaching through the book of John. We've been going through it in our, in our sermon series I know, I think I forgot, I didn't forget. We just took a break. And the first half of John is, his time has not come, his time has not come, and now it's come. And now Jesus, normally saying, don't tell people about me, he's like, yeah, let them let him, let him say these things. Because, because technically, what they're saying is correct. What they're saying is technically correct. He is the king, he is here to rescue, he is here to bring salvation, he is bringing peace. But they're saying these truthful things for all the wrong reasons. We're going to talk more about that in a moment, but let's keep reading because you thought I was done reading the passage for today because that's the part in your Bible that says the triumphal entry and it ends there and there's another, uh, another subheading that your editors put in your Bible, but no, we're going to keep reading because that wasn't there when Luke wrote this. Verse 41, pick it up with me. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against the walls that encircle you and close in on you from every side. 
They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize when God visited you. So what did we just read here? It says, as he got even closer, so he's still on his way to Jerusalem. It's the tail end. It's the, it's the, it's the home stretch of his journey that started in chapter 9 for 10 chapters He's been marching to Jerusalem, and here at the very end, Jerusalem is in sight. He begins to weep over it. You see, he's weeping because he recognizes that the crowd that's there that day and that city and its leaders, he's recognizing the vast amount of blindness that's around him, spiritual blindness. He's weeping over the fate of Jerusalem, people who desire peace, a city that's named with the word peace in it, Jerusalem. They desire peace, and he's saying, you want peace, but you have no idea the way to peace. You see, what he's, refer- what he's referencing and what he knows is about to happen just a few decades later in AD 70 is that Rome's going to siege Jerusalem. They're going to level it to the ground. They're going to destroy the temple, which ends all temple worship. Notice there's no temple, right? AD 70. And then the heartbreaking words of this whole thing. You did not recognize it when God visited you. The Messiah has come and you did not recognize it because of your blindness. So I grew up thinking, okay, is there one crowd or two crowds? And we talked about that at the beginning of this message. I have an opinion, but I think the bigger point is there was, they were blind crowds. Both were blind crowds. I used to think one crowd was the good guys, one crowd was the bad guys, but they both missed it. The group that said crucify him was blind. The group that said crown him was blind. See, the triumphal entry crowd was looking for Jesus to deliver on their political and nationalistic desires. They were excited about what Jesus could do for them. They didn't ultimately want Jesus as the end. He was a means to their end. They were blinded by their desires, and the triumphal entry crowd was just as against Jesus and his purposes as the crowd that said, crucify him. The triumphal entry crowd was just as rebellious against God's kingdom as the crowd that said, crucify him. They called him king, but they had no appetite for his kingdom. And I'm afraid sometimes we as Christians aren't too different. We too call him king, but don't have an appetite for his kingdom. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we want to sit on the throne of our heart. We want to be the Lord of our life. Most of us are smart enough to acknowledge that and not admit that. Most of us, even if that's true of us, don't even recognize it in us. But when we say you know, God's going to give you what you need and not what you want, and we could say amen to that, and we could, we could hold that as a truth. But when we don't get what we want, we actually are kind of disturbed by that, are we not? We question God's goodness. We question his presence. We question his power. Just like the crowd at the triumphal entry, we place our expectations on Christ, and we're looking for him to deliver for us. Kind of heavy, Jerome. I thought you said this wasn't like a get better and try harder message. 
It kind of feels like it does, doesn't it? You just called us out, at least some of us, at least that guy you called out, not me, I'm good. I promise you this is not a get better and try harder message. I promise you this is a message of grace, and here's why. Yes, the picture I just painted of us along with the crowd is not pretty, but that's a good thing. You see, it's because the picture is not pretty that there is a need for good news. And here it is. Jesus is entering Jerusalem, being hailed a victor, a military king, and he's weeping because these people are missing him because of their own desires and their expectations of what they can get that they want him to fulfill and deliver for them. He's riding past this blind crowd, ultimately going to the cross to give them what they need. You see, Jesus is actually on his way to be everything that they're saying of him, even though they have no idea what they're really saying. Jesus is dying for this blind crowd who are just like us. Those who want to sit on the thrones of their heart and those who want to be the Lord of their own lives. Who say the right things for the wrong reasons. The good news is that Jesus is advancing toward the cross. He's been advancing for 10 chapters. The crown's blindness didn't stop Jesus. It wasn't like he was like 99% of the way to Jerusalem and said, you know what? These guys are totally missing it. Psh, changed my mind. He's faced with it. I don't know if this broke his heart more than like straight up opposition by the Pharisees, but I would imagine that if, if anything, this just made his resolve to fulfill what he came to do even greater. I'm going to keep moving. Knowing what lied ahead. The good news is that God's grace is deeper than we often give him credit for because our sin is deeper than we actually want to admit. If we're just like that crowd, which I'm proposing that we are at times, Our sin is greater than we really realize, certainly greater than we want to admit. And therefore, God's grace is so much deeper. See, Palm Sunday is a story of grace. It's a story of God's grace for those who are blind and miss him. The blind crowd that shouted crucify him, the blind crowd that shouted crown him. Jesus weeps at our blindness and he pays for it with his life. He didn't come to kill and to overthrow. He came to die and to overthrow because God's grace is deeper than we often give him credit for because our sin is deeper than we actually want to admit. So here's what I'd like for you to do this week as we lead up to Easter. First of all, take time this week to marvel, to ponder. And I believe marvel comes after pondering. If you ponder the depth of God's grace, as we lead up to Easter, would you take some time, really set some time apart, maybe come to 6 a.m. prayer and sit in a corner and, and use that prayer time to really just recount the depth of God's grace towards us, his love and his mercy. See, I, if we were like a different kind of church, we had like all these special days every single day of the week. We don't. But that doesn't mean every single day this week can't be an incredibly special time of reflection, preparing our hearts for Easter. And I would say this, don't be afraid to ask God to reveal to you where you might be fooling yourself, where you're saying the right things for the wrong reasons, 
Because if he shows you the depth of your self-deception and blindness, I promise he's not going to do it so he could heap guilt and shame on you. He's doing it so he could further, further reveal his loving grace and mercy. So he, a momentary wound, but opens up awe and wonder and marvel at his grace. Let this week be a rich week of contemplating just how deep his love is for you. Second thing I would say is invite a friend to church. Now, I'll be honest, it doesn't have to be this church. We're not trying to fill this building. We're trying to fill the kingdom. At the same time, I'd love for them to be here at this church. But if your friend has a church that they call home or that their family calls home or that they have some history with, just invite them. Say, you should be in church because guess what? Your friend who needs to hear the good news of the gospel, well, it's being proclaimed at a bunch of good churches all over the place next Sunday. If you're not a Christian here today, I hope that you heard two things in this message. First of all, I hope you heard that the Christians in this room are no better than you. We need grace just as much as we, we need grace today just as much as we did when we first called on Jesus. We, 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 we are still selfish and still have our own agenda. We're just sophisticated about hiding it from others and ourselves. The good news of God's grace and mercy is that his, or the second thing I want you to hear is that the good news of God's grace and mercy and his great love for you. I, I want you to hear that, that this story of grace and mercy that I, I said, as we were looking at it through the lens of what Christ was doing on the cross, it, it, it applies to you. The gospel message is that it starts with bad news. We're, we're separated from God. We were born in this, into this world separated from God because of our sin condition. And there is nothing we can do to correct it, nothing. But God takes the initiative and he sends his son, Jesus, the Logos, God taking on flesh, walking amongst his creation, living a life that we could possibly not live. He lived a righteous life that we could not live. And then he dies a death that we deserve in our place as a substitute. And if we believe in him, his righteousness is applied to us. It's called imputed righteousness. We are given right standing because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Right relationship. We are free from the punishment or the fear of punishment because he's already taken that on himself. And we're given new life. All you need to do is believe. And it's not about simply knowing the truth or, or believing the facts about Jesus, although th that's a part of it. It's about trusting him for salvation, believing that his work and his promises apply to you, believing in something that happens in the heart. When your heart believes, I believe you cross that line of faith. Before you ever share it with somebody or pray a prayer, your heart believes. Sometimes your heart believes and you cross the line of faith and your mind has to catch up. And so I've heard stories of people going, oh, whoa, I think I'm a Christian. Like as their heart believes and their, their brain just had to catch up. Perhaps today's the day you cross that line of faith. Perhaps it's, you find yourself doing that sometime this week as you ponder and think about these things. And if you do, I, I want to I ask you a favor. Would you let us know? Because we want to celebrate with you. We don't have a scoreboard in the office, I promise. We just really want to celebrate with you. We want to pray with you. We want to, we want to perhaps resource you in this new journey of faith.
As a matter of fact, our elders are gonna be up here as we sing this last song today. They're here to pray for anyone in the congregation who has a prayer need, but they're gonna pray uh, for you if you would like to say, yeah, you know, I, I think I crossed that line. We'd love to rejoice and pray with you and get connected. Let us know. See, whether you're a Christian or not, my challenge to you is to spend this week pondering God's grace. Prepare your heart for Easter. I'm genuinely excited about what God's gonna do in the hearts and lives of those of us who do so this week leading up to Easter. And I look forward to hearing your stories. Would you pray with me?